Good morning. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day as we're continuing on in our series through the books of Samuel. You can go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19. Last week we saw the beginning of Saul's opposition to David, how Saul tried to get rid of the young man, but in a way that wouldn't generate too much suspicion. And this week, though, things change. Saul's opposition goes public, so to speak, and David is forced to run. From now till the end of the book, this will be David's life. He's a man on the run. He is running from the most powerful figure in Israel. So let's pick it up in verse 1 and read the beginning of David's flight. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pen David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. 
Then Saul himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secu. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And Saul went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together now, asking God to illuminate our hearts and minds through His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that You speak through Your Word. To, to listen to the words of the Bible is to hear the voice of God. And so we pray now that You would give us ears to hear what You have spoken and what You are speaking still to Your church through Your unchanging, inspired, and errant Word. Help us to be people who listen, God who listen with ears of faith. Keep our hearts soft. Open our minds. Father, keep me from error. Pray that the truth would be proclaimed here from behind this pulpit. Pray that the truth would reign in this particular church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be a discerning people, Father, who hold fast to the things that You have spoken and to nothing else. God, we ask that Christ would be magnified in our midst today and that You would make Your Word very plain and clear and forceful upon our lives for our encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, government conspiracies, assassination attempts, a daring late-night escape, intrigue, betrayal, deception, trickery. It sounds like the plot of a Hollywood thriller, doesn't it? I mean, if you tell me Matt Damon is starring in this movie, I'm going to see it. It sounds exciting. But of course, I'm not describing the latest spy movie. What I just gave you was a recap of our chapter. Government conspiracies, assassination attempts, it's all here in 1 Samuel 19. The excitement of this chapter rivals anything you might watch on the big screen. Just think about it for a moment. You've got the powerful leader who conspires to eliminate his rivals. You've got the henchman lurking in the shadows, waiting to strike. And you've got the innocent hero whose only misstep is to overshadow his maniacal boss. I mean, it's a thrilling chapter. It is a thrilling chapter full of tension that keeps you on edge. But in the midst of all that excitement, there's a plot twist that separates 1 Samuel 19 from our fictional fugitive tales. It's subtle but significant. For all of his close calls and breathtaking escapes, David plays a relatively minor role in this chapter. He never even speaks, did you notice? He doesn't talk. In every scene, David simply reacts to the help he receives from other people. And that help always seems to come just in the nick of time. One minute longer or one foot closer and David is dead. And yet at every point he escapes as though someone unseen is working on his behalf. And that's the plot twist, friends. This chapter is not your standard fugitive story. It's not even ultimately Saul versus David. 1 Samuel 19 is actually Saul versus the Lord. 
By conspiring against David, Saul conspires against the God who stands behind David and works on David's behalf. That's why throughout the chapter we find David reacting, not initiating. He is reacting to the timely help he receives. It's not that David outsmarts Saul. It's that at every turn, the Lord is one step ahead. Countering Saul's schemes and covering David with divine protection. So while the chapter is thrilling, there's also an element of humor. There are parts of the Bible that are intended to make you chuckle. And this is one of them. Saul's schemes are laughable. They're laughable. He's always a step too late. His henchmen look like fools. And by the end, Saul finds himself in the one place he's trying to avoid. Humbled and bowing down before the God whom he hates and the Lord's anointed whom he opposes. You see, it's Saul versus the Lord in 1 Samuel 19. And it's laughable to consider that Saul might win. As we look now to our exposition, you'll notice the chapter follows a clear pattern. It's a series of deliverance scenes. It's a series of deliverance scenes. The pattern goes verse 1, verse 8, verse 11, and finally verse 15. It's a series of scenes, and the scenes build on one another so that the final deliverance has the most remarkable impact. Each scene has the same features. Saul seems to have the advantage, whether it's the element of surprise or greater resources or people on his side, but every time David somehow escapes. So we could sum up the big picture of chapter 19 like this. Saul rages, David runs, and yet at every every turn, the Lord is David's refuge. What we need to do then is pay attention to God's work on David's behalf. That's what we need to give our attention to. God's work on David's behalf. So, I want to draw your attention to three pictures of the Lord's protection from this chapter. Three pictures of the Lord's protection. The first is found in verses 1-7 to where Saul's rage is restrained by God's Word. Restrained by God's Word. The conspiracy is born in verse 1. Saul's earlier scheme didn't work. The Philistines didn't kill David. They only made him more successful. And now David has even more popularity than before. So in Saul's mind, desperate times call for desperate measures. He recruits his servants and even his son Jonathan to be the instruments of his rage. If the Philistines can't kill David, then certainly someone in the palace will be able to do so. And understand, friends, this plan should work rather easily. Saul has the advantages of power and surprise. Think of all the places where David could be trapped. It could be in the hallway. It could be in the throne room. It could be in the kitchen. Maybe it's the end of the day when all the servants are preparing to go home. Who knows? Who knows when somebody could strike him down? And that's the point. On the surface, this should be the end of David. This should be the end of the story. It ends right here. He's going to die. But there's something at work that Saul does not expect and that something comes from his own household, his son, Jonathan. We don't know if Saul was unaware of Jonathan's friendship with David or if, or if he simply underestimated it. But either way, 
the king's plot is foiled by his own son. Notice verse 1, how quickly Jonathan steps in. There's no delay. He immediately warns David. Friends, this is covenant love in action. Remember, Jonathan and David made a covenant with one another. This is covenant love in action. Jonathan puts himself at risk for the sake of his friend. Gestures are good, like when Jonathan gave David his robe and his armor. But at the end of the day, covenant commitment requires action. It requires sacrifice and risk for the good of another. And that's what Jonathan does here. He shows his love for David by warning him of the plot. That's not all Jonathan does. Notice verse 3. He also promises to advocate for David. Jonathan will try to persuade his father to call off the scheme. Again, consider the risk that Jonathan is taking. Sometimes when we read the Bible and we know these familiar stories, we lose sight of the the, the humanity of the moment. This is very risky on Jonathan's part. At any point, Saul could fly off the handle and turn on Jonathan. In fact, that's what he's going to do in the next chapter. Next week, he tries to kill his own son. So this is a risk that Jonathan takes. It's a risk not only of warning David, but of also advocating on David's behalf. Jonathan's covenant commitment to his friend is expressed in action and in sacrifice. Now, before we consider how this turned out, brothers and sisters, I want to pause here and make a connection with our congregation. We're going to take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service this morning. And before we eat and drink from the Lord's table, we're going to read our church covenant together. We have a church covenant precisely because of what we see here from Jonathan's life. Because covenant commitment to one another requires action. It requires risk. It requires sacrifice. It requires doing good to another tangibly. It's not enough just to say, I'm committed to you. We must also show that commitment in ways that do good to others. Friends, that's what our membership covenant here at our church does. It lays out the kind of committed love we've promised to show one another. So Jonathan's care for David does help us consider the kind of care we've promised to show one another as members of the body of Christ. As we look back to the text, you'll notice in verse 4 that Jonathan goes to speak to his father and his words are a study in wisdom. They're a study in wisdom. Clearly, Jonathan is a man who knows God's ways. Point by point, he brings wisdom before Saul. He reminds Saul of all the good David has done. Verse 5, how he put himself at risk and struck down Israel's enemies. He reminds Saul of God's work through David. Verse 5 again, how the Lord delivered His people through David's hand. And Jonathan even reminds Saul of David's innocence. Verse 4, how David has done nothing wrong against the king. You see, every step of the way, every step, Jonathan speaks wisdom to his wayward father. But the most significant parts of Jonathan's speech are the beginning and the end. Notice them with me. Verse 4, Jonathan says, Let not the king sin against his servant David. And then verse 5, it ends in the same way. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Beginning, don't sin. End, don't sin. Or sin. Or I'm getting my D's mixed up. Sin. Don't sin. 
You see what Jonathan has done at this point? He's introduced the one thing Saul has been determined to ignore, the truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word. The law of Moses clearly prohibited the shedding of innocent blood. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy 27, you'll see the Lord swore He would curse the man who struck down his neighbor in secret. That's exactly what Saul's trying to do. He's running headlong into that curse. He ignores the warning of God's Word. So Jonathan, full of wisdom, confronts his father with the only thing powerful enough to break through Saul's hard heart. The truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word given to us in the Scriptures. And surprisingly, Jonathan's plea works. Look at verse 6. And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. He wouldn't listen to Samuel. He wouldn't listen to the Scriptures earlier, but he listens to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Friends, this is an instance of what we call God's common grace. God's common grace. The Lord's goodness is so abundant and so overflowing that the effects of His goodness are felt by believer and unbeliever alike. The rain rises on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the just and the unjust. It's common grace. Or you could say it's just God's overflowing goodness. That's what we have here with Saul. Saul is kept from sin through God's Word, though he denies that Word personally. He's kept from sin. Now, of course, Saul goes back on his oath almost immediately. But for this moment, for a split second in time, Saul's rage is restrained. And it's held back because Jonathan brought God's Word to bear on his father. Friends, what an instructive moment this should be for us as God's people. Jonathan's wisdom reminds us of something we too often forget. That God's Word has a preserving power. God's Word has a preserving power. There are times, according to God's will, when the open statement of the truth is enough to restrain wickedness. In fact, if you look all across our culture, there is abundant evidence that things are not as bad as they could be. In the most part, for the most part, laws are obeyed and people fulfill their responsibilities. I was sitting at a stoplight this week reflecting on this and thinking, what an amazing evidence of God's kindness it is that stoplights work. That people don't just plow through them. That's the effect of God's common grace, His overflowing goodness. Are there problems in our world? Yes, absolutely. Is there evidence of sin's corruption? Without a doubt. But that corruption is not as awful as it could be because of the preserving power of God's Word. It restrains the spread of wickedness. And I hope you see the implication that comes from this. It's common these days to to hear folks say we live in a post-Christian world. And so therefore we should leave the culture wars behind and we should acknowledge the fact that we live in a post-Christian world where things are just radically different than how they used to be. And for the most part, I think that's true. There are certain elements of the Christian worldview that have crumbled before our very eyes, most notably the biblical concepts of personhood and family. 
But there's a mistake we need to guard against at this point. In a post-Christian world, we need more biblical truth, not less. This isn't about culture wars. This is about loving our neighbor as ourselves. How do you do that? By making God's truth clear and plain. Because we're the ones who are supposed to do it. Our presentation of that unchanging truth might look different than in times past. And we might have to start farther back to rebuild some foundational things. But our task still remains the same. We must make known the truth of God's Word as an evidence of love for our neighbor. Friends, this is why Jesus told His followers they were salt and light. That's not just clever imagery from the Lord. Salt preserves against decay. And light dispels darkness. That's part of our mission in this world. Regardless of the age in which we live. You can't get post-Bible. We make known the truth of God. And as we do so, we pray God would use that truth, just like He did here with Jonathan, to work against sin. Well, there's more we could say, but I hope that it's enough to be clear at this point that because Saul's rage is restrained by God's Word, we should be reminded of the preserving power of the Scriptures, the preserving power of the truth, and then be driven to prayer that God would fill us with boldness to be the salt and light He's called us to be. It's part of our calling. Sin is restrained by God's Word, just as we see here from Saul's life. The thrilling chapter continues, and in verses 8-16 to we see our second truth. Saul's rage is thwarted by God's providence. Thwarted by God's providence. Now before we look at how God worked in these moments, there are two thorny questions we need to address. And I want to just address them head on so that we can then focus on the Lord's work to deliver David. The first question comes from verse 9. Verse 9. Does the harmful spirit cause Saul to sin? God sends a harmful spirit again for like the fourth time. Does it cause Saul to sin? No. The harmful spirit does not cause Saul's sin. Saul is responsible for his actions and he alone bears the guilt for his murderous anger. That being said... We must recognize that at times, God does give people over to sin so that they experience His judgment in greater measure. This is a sobering truth, friends, but it's a biblical truth. A person can reach such a depth of rebellion that God removes the restraining effects of His common grace and He gives that person over to their sinful desires so that his or her life is dominated by wickedness. Think of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1. That horrible spiral that is driven by the phrase, so God gave them up. God gave them up. And it gets worse with each paragraph. That's something of what happens here with Saul. The harmful spirit doesn't cause him to sin. The harmful spirit doesn't put anything in Saul that's not already there. But the harmful spirit is the judgment of God. The judgment that causes Saul to reap the bitter fruit of sin unrestrained. God is giving him up to the evil of his own heart. By the way, that's why we should never take those corporate elements for granted. For the opportunity to confess sin and look to God's grace again. It's not a small thing. That's the first question. 
about the harmful spirit. The second question comes from verses 13 to 17. What are we to make of Michael's deception of Saul and his men? There's there's no way around it. She deceives Saul's servants and then she lies to her father. And her, her, her lie in verse 17 impugns David's character. He didn't tell her that he would kill her. So what are we to make of Michael's deception of Saul and his servants? Well, I think the clearest thing we, we can say is that we should remember the difference between description and prescription. The difference between description and prescription. The Bible often describes an action, but that doesn't mean it then prescribes us doing that action. That's the case here, I think. So the fact that Michael's lie is recorded in Scripture does not mean that we can lie. At the same time, I know what some of you are thinking. What about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1? What about Rahab hiding the spies in Joshua 2? To which I would say, yes, those are fascinating parallels. And we could, con- we could contrast them and compare them. There are some contrasting points, by the way. They're not exactly the same. We could compare and contrast those, and it would be a good conversation. If you'd like to have that conversation, then I'd love to get together with you. But that's not the burden of our text. Michael's hoax is recorded not to prompt a discussion about situational ethics, but to tell us something about Saul. That's actually why it's in here. Her hoax is intended to tell us something about Saul and his feeble attempt to oppose the Lord. So, I know that there's more that we could say, but I hope that's enough to answer our questions, at least initially, and therefore allow us to focus on what happens in these verses. In the next two scenes, David escapes by what some would call good fortune. But for those who have eyes to see, there's more here than good fortune. Again, it's subtle, but significant. Let's look closer together. It starts off in verses 8-10 to with another instance of Saul's lousy aim. These verses essentially repeat events from the previous chapter. David is again successful in battle, and Saul again responds by trying to impale David with his spear. Now, on the one hand, we might think, wow, Saul is terrible at throwing spears. He is really bad. But it's more than that. Saul is an experienced warrior. He's fought many battles, and he knows how to wield his weapons. What's more, the distance between Saul and David could not have been very great. This wasn't a hard throw, in other words, and certainly not for a strapping man like Saul. And yet Saul misses, and for the third time. Friends, it's more than lousy aim. This is God's providence protecting David from what should be certain death. You see, this moment should be a corrective to us, and it might even be a rebuke to some of us. God's providence is His government of the created world, that He controls all things so that He governs, sustains, and preserves everything you see around you. God's providence is so prevalent in Scripture that we often overlook it. It's just like the air that Scripture exists in. But we've been so conditioned by a naturalistic view of the world that denies the supernatural that we easily miss God's hand at work. This isn't random. And it isn't good fortune. This is the Lord sparing the life of His anointed one. Friends, how many opportunities for gratitude and how many opportunities for worship have we missed because we attribute to secondary causes what should belong to God? 
We live and move and breathe and have our being in Him. There isn't random. There isn't coincidence. There isn't fortune. There's only God who governs all things for the good of His people. How many times have we missed a moment for gratitude and worship because we're so quick to say, man, wasn't I lucky? No, friend. It was the Lord. We see that here with David. The Lord's providence continues as next we watch Saul's clumsy henchman. Look at verse 11. Saul sends a team of assassins to watch David's house and then to kill him. Again, this should be an easy mission. They know where David is. They've got him surrounded. All they have to do is wait for the right opportunity. I mean, they've essentially they got a siege on his house. But incredibly, their mission fails and in spectacular fashion. They're duped by David's quick-thinking wife who also happens to be Saul's daughter. So don't miss that. First it was Saul's son protecting David. Now it's Saul's daughter protecting David. The Lord is doing everything He can to let Saul know, you're fighting against me. In God's providence, Michael learns of the plot. Notice it doesn't tell us how she hears. She just hears. She learns of the plot and she engineers David's escape. She lowers him through a window and he slips off into the shadows. And what, ha- what happens next is intended to make Saul and his men look like fools. They've already let David escape from under their nose, but then they follow up that blunder by falling for the oldest trick in the book, the dummy under the bed sheets. Right? This is teenaged hijinks. This never works, except now in the Bible. The details are a bit fuzzy. We're not exactly sure what the image is. And does Michael put it under the covers or does she put it beside the bed? It's, not, it's hard to know. But the overall point is clear enough. Her ruse fools Saul's men and buys David enough time to escape. They look like fools. And how did it all start? With Michael just happening to hear about Saul's henchmen. Again, it's not, it's not fortune, friends. It's not good luck. It's the Lord's providence working in quiet, unseen ways to protect the life of His anointed one. Before we leave this second truth, there's an encouraging connection that I want to call to our attention just before we go on to the third. David's escape during the night prompts him to write a song. And that song has come down to us in Psalm 59. I'd encourage you to read it at some point. It's a stirring meditation on the Lord's protection. Perhaps the most striking feature of the psalm is David's attitude in the last stanza. Remember, he's he's surrounded and his life is threatened. And yet, listen to what he sings. We read it for our call to worship. David writes, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. When will David sing of God's steadfast love? In the morning. Notice verse 11 in our text. When did Saul's men plan to kill David? In the morning. Do you see the connection, friends? David is teaching us how to understand his moment of trial. He is teaching us how to perceive what happened to him. How to understand his moment of deliverance. He sings of God's love in the morning because he is confident it was the Lord's hand protecting him. That the Lord's deliverance would come right where the wicked intended to strike him. In the morning. So I go back to what I said just a moment ago. I pray this is an encouraging reminder to us, brothers and sisters, 
Saul's rage is thwarted not by luck or by fortune. There is no luck. There is no fortune. It's by the providence of a good God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And our lives move according to the same. Well, that brings us to the final truth, which I take to be the pinnacle of God's protection. In verses 18 to 24, Saul's rage is subdued by God's power. Subdued by God's power. Restrained by God's word, thwarted by God's providence, and now subdued by God's power. After escaping from home, David flees to Ramah, which you remember is Samuel's hometown. Perhaps the prophet will be able to provide some refuge for David. But before David and Samuel can even settle in, Saul hears. It seems Saul is always hearing. His informants are everywhere, and now David is cornered. Finally, Saul thinks, he'll be able to get his man. So once again, Saul sends in the assassins. But then something curious happens. Actually, it's not curious, it's just shocking. Notice verse 20. Saul's henchmen are overcome by God's Spirit, and they begin to prophesy. We're not told exactly what this prophesying entailed, but it was probably some mixture of prayer and praise, maybe even words of exhortation to one another. So so try to picture it. Here you have these goons who are armed to the teeth, but before they can even lay a finger on David, they drop their weapons and raise their hands in praise and service to the Lord. And remarkably, this happens not once, not twice, but three times. Three times. Friends, this is divine deliverance displayed so as to leave no doubt. Don't miss that. In the first scene, Jonathan was the means of deliverance. In the second scene, Michael was the means of deliverance. In the third scene, it's not Samuel, it's God's Spirit. It's God's Spirit. David's back is against the wall. He cannot help himself. Not even Samuel, the mighty prophet, can help David at this point. So what does the Lord do? He sends forth His Spirit in irresistible, unbridled power, and without any weapons or any warning or asking the men's permission, He crushes them under His will. He makes them do what He wants them to do. He turns these wicked men into His mouthpieces. But that's not all. We've seen enough to know Saul won't quit so easily. Notice verse 22. Saul decides to go. He thinks to himself, if these fools can't get the job done, then I'll just have to do it myself. But Saul has underestimated his opponent. He thinks he's chasing David. He's blind to the fact that he's actually fighting against God. So God makes His point so powerfully plain that it leaves Saul completely humbled. Notice what happens in verse 24. It's the final word of the chapter. Saul is overcome with the Spirit's irresistible power, but he's also stripped bare. And he lays on the ground all day prophesying before the Lord and before Samuel. Now that's a strange picture, isn't it? Why would Saul be stripped of his clothes? Well, think back to the last chapter where Jonathan gave his robes to David. Remember, Jonathan's robe pictured his position. The same is true here. Saul is stripped of his clothes as a symbol of his rejection as the king. This entire chapter, Saul has been fighting to hold on to his own power. But here at the end, where do we find him? Not robed and reigning, but naked and helpless. 
brought low before the man God has determined to raise up in his place. Saul has nothing to stand against the Lord. What he's so desperate to keep, he loses under God's power. But there's another aspect to note from the final verse. Saul's nakedness also pictures his powerlessness. Saul has nothing. No power, no ability, no scheme, no resource. He has nothing that can undo what God has determined to do. With only his spirit, the Lord turns Saul's scheme into a moment of humiliation. You could give Saul every army on the face of the earth, and with the breath of his mouth, the Lord would strike them down. Saul has nothing. He cannot stop what God has determined to do. You see, friends, that's, what's the, that's what this strange final verse is saying to us. If I could just put it very plainly, if you oppose God, this is what you can expect. To be humbled under His power. If you resist God's purposes, this will be your end. You will be brought low before Him, not in joyful worship, but in humble submission. Please listen to me, friends. I I don't know everyone's spiritual state this morning. But if you do not know God through faith in Christ, then I would plead with you to hear what the Scriptures are saying at this point. The most foolish thing a person can do is try to stand against God. It always ends in defeat. Either now or on the last day. And the ultimate defeat will be separation from God forever in hell. So if you do not know Christ, I plead with you, listen to the warning that comes from Saul's life. His humiliation in verse 24 is calling to you to lay down your futile opposition to God, confess your sin, and look to the Savior He has provided in Christ. It's not just an obscure, strange verse in the Bible that makes you scratch your head and go, huh, why did he lose his clothes? It's a verse that says, don't stand against God. This will be your end too. It's the amazing good news of the Gospel that God would redeem those who were rebels against Him, that God would offer up His own Son to die as the sacrifice for sinners. Lay down the opposition. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. I pray the Spirit would come this morning with that same irresistible power and do what God has determined to do, which is grant new life to His people. Saul's rage is subdued by God's power and that should compel us to submit our lives by faith to the living God who has revealed Himself in Christ. So, restrained by God's Word, thwarted by God's providence, subdued by God's power. Three pictures of the Lord's protection. I said at the outset that 1 Samuel 19 had an element of humor to it. Saul's schemes are laughable, and we've certainly seen that throughout our study this morning. But there's also another reason for that element of humor. There's also another reason for saying that this chapter is laughable. Do you remember Psalm 2? Psalm 2. It starts off with the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And the psalm then describes how the entire earth is united in opposing the work of God. The kings of the earth, the psalmist says, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed one. 
You see, that's the burden of Psalm 2. How should God's people respond when all the rulers of the earth are united against the Lord? What should God's people do? How should they respond? That's where the humor comes in. After describing the world's opposition, the psalmist then gives us God's response. Do you remember what it says? He who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. God laughs at the world's schemes. He laughs at the world's schemes. Not because He's cold-hearted and doesn't care about His people. God laughs because the world's opposition is nothing compared to Him. Brothers and sisters, that's what we've seen in 1 Samuel 19. If you want to know where Psalm 2 comes from, it comes from this chapter. This chapter is a living illustration of the truth of the psalm. Saul is one of the kings of the earth. And he's raging against David. But remember, David is not just any upstart rival. David is the Lord's anointed. And it's from David's line that the Messiah will come. So consider what this means, friends. Saul's opposition to David pictures the world's opposition to Christ. Saul raged against David, and following in his footsteps, the rulers of this age rage against the Lord Jesus. But their opposition is laughable. Just as Saul failed at every turn, so also this world fails to destroy the Lord Jesus. Friends, this is why Christ can say the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. Because He who sits in heaven laughs. That's why. Saul couldn't kill David. Death couldn't hold Jesus. And therefore, this world will never destroy Christ's church. Brothers and sisters, that's what I want to end with this morning. I want to emphasize this truth so that we, so that we hear it clearly and that we, we go out with it ringing in our ears. The promise of 1 Samuel 19 is not that God will protect us from every danger. That is not the promise of this text. The promise of 1 Samuel 19 is that nothing can stand against Jesus Christ. That's the promise of this text. And that's the promise that is ours through faith. The way we receive God's protection is by taking refuge in Jesus. There is a horrible final day coming and the only safe place to hide is in Christ. As we hide ourselves in Him by faith, we can rest in the assurance that God will protect us and keep us safe until the last day. Will there be storms? Yes. Will there be opposition? Yes. Even David endured such opposition. Even Jesus endured such opposition. But the promise of the Gospel is that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. He is our refuge, friends. We don't have a bland, vanilla promise of protection. We have a Savior whose name is Jesus. And as we hide ourselves in Him, we can rest securely knowing that He will promise to protect us even to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of Christ that leaps off the pages of Scripture to magnify Your Son. We thank You, Father, for using this moment from David's life, this historical moment of trial. Thank You for using this to teach us about what it means to know Your protection in Christ. 
Father, help us not to be content with just vague notions that You will watch over us. Help us to put the flesh and blood human face of Christ upon that promise and to know, Father, that just as surely as the Lord Jesus lived and bled and died and rose again, You will not let Your church fall. Give us eyes to see Him, God. Strengthen our faith. Root us deeply in the work of Christ. We pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen.